Welcome to episode five of the Missing Stone podcast. This week, I spoke with the founder and director of the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund, Dave Johnson. Dave became passionate about conservation while conducting mountain lion research as a teenager. And then his career transitioned from becoming a wildlife biologist and researcher to becoming a zookeeper after a memorable summer of grizzly bear research in Alaska. Dave has spent the last 25 years passionate about educating the next generation of conservationists, from writing children's books to mentoring teens as part of the Denver Zoo's Explorer program. We then explored the work he is doing with the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund, supporting community-level conservation efforts across 24 countries around the world. At the time this episode is released, Dave is currently visiting a wildlife veterinary hospital built on the grounds of the National Trust for Nature Conservation in the Cheatwan National Park of Nepal, which the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund helped raise the money to build. If you would like to learn more about the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund, please visit the links below. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to The Missing Stone, everybody. I am super excited to speak with founder and director of the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund, Dave Johnson. How's it going, Dave? Good morning, Sean. Nice to be on here. It's awesome to have you on here. So you just returned from Africa pretty recently. What was the work you were doing over there? Uh, This most recent trip, uh, we took a bunch of the community over to South Africa. And so we're working with Sankob, um, with the African penguin population. So that's one of our, our bird projects, ongoing bird projects, um, getting them some help with uh, uh, chick bolstering, um, which is taking eggs and chicks from the beaches and hand rearing them and then getting them back to the wild. They're having a, a lot of uh, eggs and chicks um, abandoned. And with, with people, the rangers uh, monitoring them, we're realizing that because of different uh, food sources being available, sometimes the the parents will abandon the chicks. So instead of those animals dying, we're getting them back into the wild. And with only ten thousand breeding pairs left uh, in South Africa, it's a it's a really essential program. So we took people over to to partner with penguins. Um, we collared a, an elephant up in Kruger National Park with our community as part of a human elephant conflict um, kind of mitigation uh, initiation that we're doing uh, up there with them. And we dehorned a rhino. Uh, they're they're taking the rhino horns off of some of the rhinos in that Kruger region to uh, cut down on poaching. So we just, uh, we took, I think we had 42 people from the KACF all involved in that 17-day uh, program, including some of my buddies from college, from high school, um, people around the country, other zookeepers. So it was a, a really good uh, collaboration, but uh, and I've been back now for about two weeks. That's absolutely awesome. I'm excited to speak more with you on that work later in the podcast. But first, let's go all the way back to the beginning. What first drove you into thinking conservation could be a career or being interested in conservation? Well, I'd always been interested in animals and I knew my career. I wanted it to somehow focus on on me being in the animal realm. But my first real um, taste of the conservation side that got me excited, I was I was 15 and I got a uh, volunteer position at the Western North Carolina Nature Center. I grew up near uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and um, 
I was working there in high school. My parents would have to drop me off to work there when I was 15. And then I got my driver's license and I could really go and work more um, there at the nature center. And they have uh, indigenous wildlife. So black bear and deer and turkey and, and mountain lions. What became available to me was part of a National Geographic um, mountain lion sensitivity study. They were trying to figure out if there were any eastern cougars left. So uh, so this was something that um, I could take um, fecal samples and urine samples from the uh, from the animals that we had on display at the nature center, tying in local wildlife with the community, take them out there and set up uh, areas along deer paths and trails and rake them all out and put this um, urine and fecal samples in there and see if I could get any prints, any footprints. So that was my first taste. Uh, I got a state driver's license. I got to drive around um, a state truck at 16. Um, I got the keepers to close the mountain lines in for feeding and I could go in and get samples and then take them out in the field. And I was 16 years old. And so for me, being a big animal nerd at the time and uh, like a junior in high school, I, I just thought I was just the coolest, coolest cat around. Uh, and so that I think that's what really entrenched me that people do this for a living. I could do conservation. I could work with animals and stuff as a career. And that was uh, in high school. So that was a pretty big motivator. So you were involved with a research study at 16? Yeah, I was. I was. I got to sketch out um, some prints that I found. I got to do some uh, plaster casts of some prints. It ended up coming back that it was, um, it was a, they thought it was a big mastiff. Uh, a big, a big dog that um, that the claws weren't showing, but I was super excited to find some uh, some around uh, the Limbo Gorge area, and I thought maybe you know our work was going to be in National Geographic, but they didn't really find anything um, that they could utilize while I was there before I got into college. So, uh, so yeah, but yeah, being in high school and being part of a Nat Geo um, work in progress was uh, was pretty fun. So what surprised you being involved in research that early on going from we all go from wildlife nerds at one point to that first project? What kind of what were your expectations and how did it differ from that? I think my expectations were I would get to collaborate a lot with some really cool biologists and I'd be um, infused into into the realm of mountain lions and that would be my niche and I would stay a mountain lion guy. And, uh, but what happened is I was actually alone a lot doing this work and, um, didn't really get a lot of, uh, attention, uh, from, from other biologists. I was pretty much uh, more of a grunt laborer. Um, and, uh, so I think, um, you know, when I went to college, I, I was, uh, not on the mountain lion, team in my mind anymore, but more open to other species and other things that I could do. Um, so I think reality was uh, first set in, like uh, first set in for me because I'm like, wow, maybe maybe this mountain lion thing in North Carolina isn't for me. Maybe there's something else out there. So from that step, I'm always interested to hear the decisions that people make when they decide they want to go into this field. Where'd you end up deciding to go to college and what major did you pick? I went to uh, Chapel Hill. I went to North Carolina. Um, it was an uh, in-state uh, college. Um, I wanted to go to Tennessee, um, but it was out-of-state tuition. It was only I was only six miles from the Tennessee line growing up. 
And so UT was our big school. You know, we were big volunteers fans. But Chapel Hill uh, was much um, less expensive than going out of state. And I majored in wildlife biology. But um, I had to go to NC State for a summer and pick up an extra plant class to satisfy all the wildlife because North Carolina really wasn't the wildlife school. Um, once I went into that realm, um, I should have probably gone my whole uh, four-year undergrad career to, to NC State, but I made it work out um, to fulfill my wildlife biology requirements. So as you approach that degree, you mentioned coming out of that degree, you ended up uh, spending time in Alaska doing research there, which ended up being pretty pivotal for you. If you're saying that you know you ended up at a school that's not known for wildlife biology, what was the steps it took to then try to get into the field from that degree? I think once I got the degree, um, I tried to figure out what my niche was. And uh, I followed a, a girlfriend down to South Carolina and got some zoo experience. Um, it was the only thing I could really find. And I didn't think I was going to be a zoo guy, but uh, I ended up really liking the teaching and the community and working with the kids. It was a it was an avenue I hadn't really thought of. And then I went to uh, Alaska in 1995. So I'd been out of school about five years. So uh, so that kind of followed up on the, the zoo work um, and really collaborating, getting to know people, you know, um, you know, which is still true to this day is uh, meeting somebody that introduces you to somebody. And so I knew I knew a, a veterinarian working on caribou work. And so she she ended up getting me in touch with a bear guy who knew Dr. Lancia, who I'd worked with at NC State, I was uh, starting a, a master's program with the black bears, and he was doing a, um, a, a a bear sensitivity study. He was using Ipecac solution in in um, tainted foods at dumpsters to try to make bears nauseous so they wouldn't dumpster dive. So I was uh, thinking about going back to grad school, and then. Um, through these bear connections, I got a job as a seasonal uh, wildlife biologist with the Bureau of Land Management up in Alaska. So I, I left North Carolina and uh, and moved to Alaska to pursue this new uh, this new animal wrinkle. So I have to ask, was that summers or winters in Alaska? <laughs> uh, my my stint, uh, I left in early April, so still snow up there. And then everything ended uh, late November. So I missed the brunt of the winters up in Fairbanks, but got some cold weather, and got some snow on, on either side. So a little bit of a shock for a Carolina boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, when I would drive in, I was like, what are these weird things in the parking lot? And uh, and they had to tell me inside as like, hey, Southerner, that's how you, you know, plug your vehicle in in the winter. So your battery doesn't die. I was like what <laughs> it's it gets that cold here and they were like oh yeah my my the guy i worked with said uh i can tell when i sit in my truck the difference in 30 and 40 below by how hard the seat is i was like oh that's a that's a neat marvel comic talent <laughs> so you were there mostly for the summers and i've heard some pretty interesting stories of what people think summers in alaska's will be versus what field work really ends up being what were your expectations and how did that differ as you approached this field season? Well, um, 
I was really expecting uh, to be mentored by uh, a bear biologist who would share his passion and commitment. And he had been a bear biologist up there for like 30 years. And I thought I was just going to glean all this amazing information. I knew he wanted to retire. And I thought uh, as I went up there um, romantically that I was going to be handed over this wonderful career. And this guy was going to anoint me as the next bear biologist in Alaska. And uh, that was not what happened at all. Um, uh, sometimes biologists are in the field for a reason. And uh, and I went into this thinking like we were going to be besties and uh, we were just going to have so much fun in the field together. And uh, um, And he was like, you know, first few days, it was like all business, you know, chop salmon, get your camping gear, get ready for the chopper and everything. And I was kind of overwhelmed. Um, he was not not very uh, good at communicating and uh, he was not very warm or welcoming. And uh, when we got out in the field, we were dropped off way out, you know, almost to the Arctic Circle by a helicopter. And as we we're getting our gear together, he's like, here's your shotgun. Here's your gold pan. Your end of the beach is way down there. <laughs> I'm staying up here. We're putting our, our mess tent in the middle and I will see you at meals. And otherwise, unless we catch a bear and we get the sensor, um, I, I won't be seeing you at all. And so I was like, I'm, uh, as you will learn, um, horrifically potentially during this podcast, I have the gift of gab being from the South. So, uh, I like to talk and, uh, and being out there in Alaska pretty much alone for all those weeks was, uh, was definitely a, a, a growing experience. It was something that, uh, it was, um, pushing my boundaries a little bit, um, being alone. And I would hike, uh, out there and, and, uh, try to take pictures of wolves that were dinned up next door, moose, um, caribou, uh, you know, bears. It was a, it was a wonderful place for an animal person to be, but, uh, just not the best fit, uh, for me as a, as a very outgoing, um, individual who at that point then missed my community. I miss being able to teach and talk and I, I miss the kids being, you know, sponges and wanting to hear this information. So uh, Alaska ended up being the place that I decided to shelve my wildlife biology dreams and look for uh, a different, a different uh, pathway. And so was that pathway immediately zookeeping for you? Because you spent many years as a zookeeper, or did it take a couple more positions before you found your way back into that role? It took a few more positions. I tumbleweeded through, um, you know, uh, fish and wildlife and uh, uh, biology positions where I was trying to mix animals and people. Um, the biggest one, I went to Salado Wildlife Education Center in Kentucky. And I was taking care of some animals there, but part of their education team, I wanted to see what that was like. And um, that was out of um, uh, Frankfort, Kentucky. And uh, and then I got the job at the Denver Zoo. I had backpacked through Colorado and uh, actually through the, through the West with my brother and a friend. And one of our stops was uh, in Denver to, to climb a mountain and to visit some friends and go to a Rockies game. And I thought, yeah, this looks like a really cool place to live. You know, um, all the stuff, you know, I was a whitewater rafting guide growing up, great rivers, great mountains, great wildlife, all the things I needed for my weekends and an animal position 
on a really nice zoo at the Denver Zoo. And so I thought, mm, maybe in the future, I'll look at moving to Colorado. And then in 97, a position opened up. And so uh, so I left Kentucky to move out to Colorado. So I want to start by just highlighting, since I feel like there can be in this field some negativity for, towards zoos. So I want to start by uh, highlighting what were your biggest joys while zookeeping? What kept you there every day? Um, I think what kept me super engaged uh, was the the it had to be the the job was a mix of animals and people. I could uh, I could talk about my passions. It started me wanting to write kids books because I'd started up in a in the tent in Alaska and it would snow on us and I would be in my tent for days at a time. Um, I started writing poetry about kids and animals and uh, and I made up a character that I really liked and her name was Sissy Sally Sassafras. And uh, the Sassafras was my favorite tree in North Carolina. So I was paying homage to where I grew up. It's the tree that the leaves smell like root beer. And uh, when I was a, when I was the, the, biologist at a summer camp, I would have kids go find me the root beer leaves. And so that that whole time in a tent writing poems and stuff made me think like, gosh, I miss kids. And that's what the the Denver Zoo provided me. It allowed me a chance to teach and communicate. And when you're somebody that has so much passion flowing through them and you want to, you know, you want to pass on that passion to somebody else. You know, especially because we have just shown such a short time on this planet. And for me, I wanted to get this information out there. And uh, the wildlife biology position wasn't wasn't my niche. Um, so but the zoo, the zoo one ended up being my niche and it ended up getting me into elephants and rhinos and, and starting all the all the roads that uh, led me to the KACF. And at the zoo, it sounds like the Denver Zoo has a very strong a teenage program to get teenagers involved in being able to work at the zoo and see conservation firsthand. Was that a big, were you a big part of growing that, that organization there? Yeah, I, I started with the um, Explorer post uh, in 98. So as soon as I got on at the zoo, I got, I, I asked my boss, who was um, one of the uh, leaders of the Zoo Explorer Scouts, and that's through the um, the Boy Scouts of America, but it's co-ed. So, uh, and I would say three quarters of our of our Zoo Explorers through my years were, were female, where young, young women wanted to be in the field. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so that um, the Zoo Crew kids started at 13 and they went through high school graduation. So those guys were all in high school um, till they were 18 ish. And then the Explorer post went through the age of 21. So that included college age kids. So that was definitely something I loved working with both of those programs. And actually in South Africa, I had several of the ex Explorer Scouts and Zoo Crew team members that still still work with me to this day because they're just so invested in conservation. And it's part of that teaching and, and passing on that I'm talking about. Um, some of them really get it. Some of them want to be involved and, and want to be in the career and want to be allowed um, a way to to make these passion projects work. And that's what we try to do. So it's following up with these kids that now are in their 
twenties and thirties and, and are having their own kids, but they're, it's, it's passing down this lineage of conservation that the zoo provided me. And, uh, that was, that was so great. And I worked with a program in South Carolina called a shadowing program. And that's where I started working with, uh, with the teens there in South Carolina. So being in Denver was just kind of following up, um, with that initial, uh, you know, um, a flicker of, of light, you know, that you can, uh, that you can establish with these, with these teens that are so trying to figure out themselves like, like I was. So you got your start at 15, 16 in a program like this, and then you got to lead one. How much was it your experience at 15 and 16 that drove you to want to develop and grow this program? Oh, it had a huge impact. You know, people took me under their wing at the nature center. And, uh, and I remember, you know, getting to see Henrietta, the elephant, you know, she was the only like non-native animal there at the nature center. It made me have a passion for elephants. These guys let me do things, you know, when I was 15, 16 years old, and that made me want to pass that along, you know? And I think, uh, when you're that at that age, you're just so enamored by anybody that's actually, you know, getting paid to do that and, and, and is working. And I remember when I got paid for the first time, I moved from volunteer into getting paid at the nature center. And I was just taking care of the goats and the petting zoo and just helping out and getting paid. I was just like, oh my gosh, they're paying me $5 an hour to pick up a bunch of poop. And I get to wear like a, a tan shirt around and I'm a member of the team. And that's exactly that same excitement uh, that I could pass along to to these kids so that was very fun for me um being a part of those uh, institutions and just got to take my last batch of zoo explorer scouts to uh camping in yellowstone so just a few weeks ago so it was uh, some of these guys i've been working with since they were you know early in high school 14 15 years old and now they're getting ready to graduate college so it's kind of kind of fun that's awesome. So one of the biggest through lines I noticed for you was uh, during your initial research on mountain lions, when you were studying bears, you expected a collaboration, a mentorship, and it wasn't there. So what steps do you try to take as you lead programs like this, as well as uh, being involved in the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund? Uh, what types of steps are you trying to take to maybe end that cycle, if you will. Yeah, I think um, having, you know, your 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 dreams kind of dashed, having your expectations not met made me want to um, made me want to be a better mentor. You know, sometimes um, when you've had bad parenting, you want to work really hard to be a good parent. And I think that's that's what I have done is I want to keep communications open. I want to keep contacts. I don't ever want to let some of these things slip by. You know, these these um these students that I've worked with, you know, um establishing lifelong relationships with them and and following up with them when they when they need help, when they need advice, um getting them to go on these trips, um being there for them is what I've I've tried to do and uh and that I think that role has been key in uh, in keeping um this uh this program moving forward into where these explorers and zoo crew teens are now still invested 
you know, and these guys are the ones that are going to be voting in the future, Sean, for 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 green initiatives. They're going to be putting people, you know, into uh, political positions in the future. They're the ones that we need to understand that um, there can be this collaboration and this connectivity. Uh, and one of the big things is is helping them being able to problem solve. Maybe these guys aren't going to all go into careers with wildlife or they're not all going to be zookeepers and their dreams are also going to change. But that doesn't mean that they can't always have uh, me and the KACF um, as a as a partner. And that's that's what I've tried to really do is keep keep that open to them. If you're um, I've got one uh, gal named Jenny. And and Jenny came through and she wanted to be a zookeeper and life changed. She got married. She started having children, you know, and so she didn't become a zookeeper and she went more into accounting. But her and her husband just went to South Africa with the fund. They uh, they help us out um, there. Her parents have traveled all over the world with us. They're going to be going to Uganda for mountain gorillas with us. And um, her daughter ended up joining Zoo Explorers. And I just took her camping in Yellowstone. So I got to uh, I got to take Abby out with me just like I had her mom. And that's that's pretty amazing when you're you know, that's three generations of of Jenny's family that I'm working with, you know, her mom, Jenny and her daughter. And only in a position of 25 years could you could you gain that kind of exposure and experience to where this family was like, we all want to do some stuff with the KACF and for conservation. And Dave will allow us to all participate. And that actually touches kind of on the last question I was actually going to ask in this area is uh, you had a shift in your interest from thinking you were going to be a wildlife researcher to transitioning more towards zookeeping. And there's a lot of people that you've worked with over the years that I'm sure have made much more drastic shifts than that. How do you take advising high schoolers who are passionate and going into this field that is somewhat impacted, is hard to get your footing in sometimes, and oftentimes people end up shifting what they want to do over the long term? How do you navigate that when you're mentoring these kids? I think um I think Sean, the the way I go about it is um is just having them be realistic, having them understand that animal positions are are very few and there are many, many candidates. You know, help them build their resume, help them get experience, help them but but have them also understand that these are really tough positions to get. Um and that it may not be the right fit for them. Um, these animal positions, even if you get one, I've seen these guys really tormented on student loans. How can I pay off my student loan being a zookeeper? You know, how do I not have to have three jobs? And so the reality of it is if you want to have a family, if you want to, you may have to do something else, but, um, but to have them understand that, you know, you could always still be a lawyer. But you can come and release sea turtles on a beach with us and have that be that little carrot that's uh, in front of you all the time. It's like, well, I get to go on a trip with the KACF like once a year and I'm going to put up with being a dentist and putting cavities, (laughs) filling cavities in kids mouths in order to get to do that in the future. And so I think I think the biggest role for me, you know, and I tell them all the time um, when they first come to our meeting 
um, in the fall. I tell them and their parents, uh, when I got hired on at the Denver Zoo, there were 300 applicants for one job. Um, we had to take a big mammal test. We had to go through a bunch of interviews. And one of us out of 300 got that position. And so that's a that's a tough, tough battle. And a lot of the times you have to have them look around and say, these guys are going to be your friends, but they're also going to be competitors. They're also going to be wanting your same jobs, your same internships and stuff. And so getting your foot in the door now, what 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 do parents and kids have at 14 when they want to maybe be playing video games and, you know, playing soccer or running track or something? What why should they come every other Sunday and volunteer at the zoo and to let them know that the reality of this is you have to build your network now, meet these keepers meet these uh, animal staff, go to these talks where you can meet somebody in the bird world. And we've got an African wild dog speaker tomorrow night here in Denver. Come and meet these people to where you keep establishing your own network. Um, and whether you go into wildlife biology or if you're a vet tech or if you're a zookeeper or if you're a stay-at-home mom, you can still have a peace and still have this happiness if you will follow through and you get what you give. And as long as they understand that, um, I think that's a big, a big piece of the puzzle is letting them know that uh, this is going to be an uphill fight and you've got to, you've got to want it to really make it happen for yourself. So this is a great transition into who the KACF really is. So I really want to start there by asking you to just give a synopsis to listeners of who was Katie Adamson and what led you to starting the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund? Well, you're you're right. It's a good segue because um, Katie was a zoo crew teen at 13 with the zoo. She came to uh, the zoo and listened to my talk um, for potential. Um, it was a young scientist talk and she was in seventh grade. Um, and she and her mom told me that she, they were like, your talk actually made Katie want to come back to the zoo. So she joined Zoo Crew at 13. And then she came to speak to me and she said, I want to join the Explorers when I turn 14. So you have to be in high school. So she worked through Zoo Crew. And then at 14, she came over and uh, and and joined the Explorer post. So Katie was uh, an explorer with me. She would come to the zoo and work on Sundays. I would find her different jobs around the zoo with our whole community. Um, and then she entered CSU. She was studying wildlife biology at Colorado State, and she wanted to be a zookeeper, and she wanted to go with us to Nepal. Um, but she got a, a childhood cancer. She got a Ewing sarcoma that um, when she was in the Western Airs, which is a um, a community involved like horse um, event. They they all ride horses, and they they go to the stock show, and they're like. Um, ride in unison and do all these things. And so she was part of Western Airs for years, a big horse family she came from, uh, which led probably to a lot of her animal passion. But once she got, she fell off her horse and they realized that when they x-rayed, she had a a, a big tumor in her lower back. <clears throat> and um, she fought that back and forth for several years, trying to get her degree and to get healthy. Um, and unfortunately, um, at 25, Katie passed away. She succumbed to the cancer. And so um, after working with her and, you know, visiting her, you know, at 
at her home as she was trying to recover from chemo and seeing her at the zoo when her mom and dad would bring her there, sometimes in a wheelchair to the place, you know, that she loved so much. I would let her pet a rhino or do something to try to keep her fighting. Um, when she passed, I went to her folks and I said, um, I've been wanting to do something. I've been wanting to do something bigger than myself for the community. And her passing led me to want to do that. And so uh, I asked John and Colleen if we could start the uh, the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund in her name. And so uh, they didn't want to get involved, Sean. You know, they were still in shock um, when I talked to them about it. And uh, I actually missed I missed her memorial. Um, Ray went for me, but I, I missed it because I was camping with the Explorer Scouts. So uh, when when that was all said and done, so I missed that um, farewell. But what we wanted to give her was a way to utilize her passion um, for the planet, for for other teens, for wildlife, and keep that going, um, hopefully forever. You know, so um, that her name could potentially be tied in with the conservation passion. Um, and so, uh, and now it's almost been 10 years. It's been over nine years since she passed and her mom and dad have gone to Nepal with us now. Her mom and sister just went to South Africa with us and it's become something that, you know, they're so proud of. And the KACF actually just works to, um, to keep this, this passion going for, for our community, zookeepers, um, zoo volunteers, um, local uh, animal enthusiasts and under Katie's umbrella. We are now um, active in 24 countries and uh, we've raised almost $3 million. That's absolutely phenomenal. And I, I know I've told you this before, but I do have to say as somebody who grew up in a zoo program at the Santa Barbara Zoo and looking for that mentorship, I just have to say what you do for all of the students you're involved with, but especially what you were able to do for Katie Adamson is absolutely phenomenal. So, I I mean, it's really appreciated by all of us who are getting into the field. Thanks, Sean. It's uh, it's nice to hear that from somebody that came up in that same uh, in that same realm, and uh, they do, you know, make me feel very appreciated all the time. You know, we took all these photos in South Africa with them. Um, with all of the of the gang and uh, watching them grow up and uh, seeing them continue um, this uh, this uh, this fight is uh, is is really worth worth it to me. So not to take it, I feel weird taking it to more of a business side, but I do want to ask, what was it like then taking this, especially such a passion project, and turning it into a nonprofit? What were some of the issues you ran into along the way? Some of the things you had to troubleshoot? Because that's a really complex process. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know how actual, actually how complex it would turn out being. Um, you know, we just, we made like $10,000 that first year. And I was just like, woohoo, you know, we're, we're able to help a little bit. And uh, for me, um, the real reason to to turn it into a business was because of the children's books. Um, now that I had two books out and one I was working on, 
and I needed to be able to find a, a, a place to sell these, to sell these books and be able to, I couldn't have this all coming in under my account. And so I'd, I'd spoken to, uh, to an attorney about this and, and instead of going through the Denver zoo, which really muddied and complicated things being a, you know, at first we were doing conservation work for the zoo and it was going through AZAC, our uh, zookeepers association. But as it got bigger um, and, and more money started being involved, it became, um, kind of problematic for me as a zookeeper running something like that. And so I needed to take it kind of off campus. And so the the business side of things um, led to the nonprofit. And as I was looking to launch, um, that's when Katie succumbed to her cancer. So for me, it provided the the motivation, the catalyst to get my my butt off the couch. And actually, this is what has to be the impetus of 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 changing uh this route and uh if the adamsons were gonna be a part of it um i will go to all my links to try to make this into a, a to an ngo for the community and they were they were involved they they thought that that was a wonderful idea and so it came about you know having to get secretary of state stuff having to get your nonprofit, your EIN number, your tax exemption, you know, doing all this stuff was, was huge. It was, it took a lot of effort. Um, and, uh, but it, it allowed us to then be taking money to be getting grants, um, to be getting donations that were tax deductible. And it ended up, you had to tie in that business piece into the passion piece and that fusion of them is what actually allowed, um, all of the growth and uh, and all of the you know the the optimism and stuff to to be put together um to to move this forward so you're you're right it's um it's tough to go from her passing uh into how did this collaboration move forward but um it had to in order for us to gain the traction that we needed and uh and and now that everything is in place um and now it it just seems like everything has really meshed in these last few years and led to me being able to retire and do this full time. So you've talked already a little bit about some of the work that you've done in South Africa recently, but what is the primary goal of the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund? What type of work are you really trying to do with your nonprofit? What we want to do is um, we're kind of the, the biggest thing we realized when we went to Nepal for the first time in 2010, um, and this was before Katie had passed before we'd started the NGO. Um, uh, I was going there to uh, establish a network for um, with a new rhino coming into the zoo. We were building Toyota Elephant Passage and we were getting the greater one horn rhino. So this was a new rhino species. And our zoo is like 127 years old now. So it was a it was a pretty big move to bring this new rhino on board. And so uh, so I wanted to go to these countries and start taking our people to help them understand about poaching and about community and about um, ways that uh, we can establish, um, you know, connectivity. And so I took four people that first year. And what I realized over there is that the animals and the wildlife were what was so important and what took us there the first time, but it was the people that would bring us back. And it was helping the students, helping the educators, helping the wildlife biologists and the anti-poaching team, that's where we were needed. 
And so I didn't want to go in with a Western philosophy of I'm going to help you or I want to help you. I came in as a sponge and I just want to absorb everything in 2010 and be over in India and Nepal, see which country needed us the most and uh, and find out how we could collaborate efficiently. And so that's that's kind of uh, how things started moving in that direction was to set up um, this network. And then things would just flow in such a, a manner that we would meet new people that were doing things with rhinos, with elephants, with a, with a human wildlife orphanage, these kids that had lost their parents to wildlife. I had no idea which all directions we would go in, but um, we just uh, allowed ourselves to be flexible enough because we were a new, you know, a new group of people trying to help and that we would uh, be enlightened along the way. And that's what happened. But it's the, it's the fusion of cultures that actually started to resonate with me um, because I'm a people person. I didn't come at it from the wildlife biology angle. I came about it as we are people wanting to help people that is going to help wildlife. And that's kind of how we developed it. And if we can help a, a rhino biologist, if we can help somebody that's trying to do um, a gharial study, uh, with this endangered crocodile, if if there's somebody that's wanting to study herps in Nepal around climate change and see how nesting behavior and sex ratio is determined by by temperature, we just started meeting these people and started helping them develop their programs. And we go back, you know, all the time. We send people back. It's that constant um, community piece. You know, maybe I can only go to Nepal once a year, but maybe our community goes five times. And you're, you know, you're always there for the community. And I think that's a, you know, I know I say that word a lot, but it's all about building up that trust um, that the KACF is going to help and and be around. We're not a one and done. You know, we are we are establishing roots and following up on uh, on those promises to where, uh, you know, so the croc fest, for instance, moved out of November into December. They couldn't make it work. So we're going to be there in November doing the elephant health camp. It'll be my 12th visit to Nepal. We've taken over 200 people. And uh, so I said, okay, if we can't see the crop fest, I'll send more people in December. So I'm starting to build that next group that'll come. So and that's uh, that's kind of how how this all happened is, um, is getting our cultures together. And that provided um, kind of a format to move into Tanzania, to Costa Rica, to South Africa, to uh, to Borneo, that we are uh, um, a piece of the problem-solving structure in your community, and how can we help? So, when you started, because Nepal was your first project, and you talk about really trying to listen to those communities. What when you first went in trying to start doing conservation in that area? What were your initial expectations? And once you kind of spoke with that community, how did that differ from what ended up actually being needed as support to help grow conservation there? I went in um, with, uh, I got I got to meet an author from Nepal, Hemanta Mishra, who our zoo um, wildlife biologist, our conservation officer, Rich Reading, um, got me up with a, an author who then um, Dinerstein, Eric Dinerstein got me up with Hamanta Misha, who was native Nepali. 
And that led me to get my foot in the door with the National Trust for Nature Conservation, with the local World Wildlife Fund person that was in Sorha, which is right there at Chitwan National Park. So my first trip over, my expectations really were just to meet these people and see what was going on uh, with rhinos and elephants. Um, we also, at the zoo, we were having clouded leopards at this new exhibit. We were having saurus cranes. We were having fishing cats. All of those were in that Chitwan area. So I thought this was a great piece. So me going in, it was just to figure out how we could potentially tie in community efforts. Um, and what happened is we got tasked with um, helping the Chapong community. Uh, Chitwan had had really bad poaching of their rhinos all during the, the, the uprising. They had a Maoist uprising, like a civil war. They had lost 9,000 people, Sean, and, and the, the military had been pulled out of national parks to help with the fighting of the people. So that led to a lot of poaching. Um, a lot of rhinos, a lot of tigers had, had been killed. So we went in, you know, how can we help with this? And I didn't think it would be a task to us so quickly, but they said immediately at these meetings around this campfire in 2010, we're like, we need you to help with the Chapong community. They are a, a group of people marginalized in the caste system, very moved out of the national park, given a small parcel of land. And they were the big um, reason that poaching was still involved. They were leading, they were forest people. You know, they were, uh, you know, pretty much like hunter gatherers. They were living in the park. And so they were taking poachers in and killing rhinos. Um, and they were losing 12 a year. Um, and at that time, you know, we only had about 345 rhino in the park. Um, and so it was huge that they tasked this new, you know, group of people. We weren't even a nonprofit. It was just people from the Denver Zoo. <laughs> you know, they said, if you could work with the Chapong community, establish relationships, keep them from poaching. So immediately we were set on this path of helping with sustainability, helping with the marginalized community, helping with anti-poaching. They took us on an anti-poaching run on the backs of elephants you know, uh, working a quadrant around. And I was, I was in a howdah. I was on a saddle on an elephant in my, my tourist clothes, <laughs> riding with all these guys in fatigues looking for, for poachers. It was a, it was an amazing, um, first step, but they said, Hey, help the Chapong. And so now we will be going to that community in November, partnering with them. We've, you know, playing soccer, art, um, kids scholarships, getting them notebooks and stuff for school. Um, we got them beehives to uh, to create a honey market to wear, and and uh, their honey uh, was was about conservation, and so it, you know it was it was uh, created all to have them selling honey combs and honey and beeswax and all this stuff, and uh, it actually ended up helping keep elephants out of the community too. We didn't even know that was going to be one of the things that would assist, but uh, but yeah, so that's that's kind of what what happened is to immediately put that forward on a zookeeper and his community. But it also was the hook that would get us back out there to partner with these guys. And it's, it's continued to work. We just sent them over $1,500 to, for their students. Um, some of these Chapong kids can't afford to go to school. So we get them scholarships and we get them their uniforms and their books. And then we have a big community day every time we go. 
And the regional director of forestry, who's now retired, is from that Hatada area. So he's kind of our liaison. And he sets all of that in motion. And that was all 2010. And that was all a way to keep this community from wanting to poach rhinos. And uh, and instead of having 12 rhinos killed annually in Chitwan, now they're losing a rhino every other year. So it's a it's amazing, even in the span of our, you know, 13 years going over there, um, watching the population. Now there's over 600 rhinos in Nepal. So that population has doubled just in the time that we've been going. And from 2,700 animals worldwide to now there's over 4,000. You know, those are those are huge things, huge feathers in your cap as a as a first destination. So with this community first idea behind conservation, you're working with so many different communities. Have you ever had a point where you've gone into work with a community and the goals you have and the goals the community have differ drastically? And if so, how have you approached a situation like that? I think um I think that's a really good point because you you want to to use Nepal as a template. You want to say that this is going to work, um, but you have to be able to pivot. And our ability to pivot quickly is um is you know a good a good aspect of a smaller, efficient, you know, uh, you know, uh svelte NGO. You know, we we have a board of five and we have just a few people working and, and a big volunteer community, but we can pivot pretty quickly. And going from Nepal, where where these things you feel like are in place, and I want to have soccer and art and kids' communities, uh teaching and stuff involved. And for the most part, it does those pieces can work. But um as far as you know, getting involved, some some countries allow more participation with your anti-poaching team. Some some governments um, will assist NGOs and they'll really help. They look at you as a you know as a plus. Some some don't want the help. Some want just funding for projects, and some you know look at you as more of ecotourists that are donating. Um, and so you have to um, carefully kind of make your way through and figure out how is Tanzania different from South Africa, even though they're both African countries, what are we going to be allowed to do? You know, what are we not going to be allowed to do? And also finding sometimes new community members, you know, like for instance, um, the Tanzania Elephant Foundation, you know, getting Lambic, Lambic Mukabura started TEF because of our partnership. He actually started his nonprofit after we met at the airport. He was just doing elephant census work. Um, he wanted to um, he wanted to not only count elephants but also collar them. So he asked for some help, and we we gave him some help back in 2018. In 2019, he started TEF. We're helping him now with education. We're helping him get his PhD so he can be Doctor Lamick of elephants. He's working with TEF now. And now we're doing beehive fences with him. He's he's built his collaboration. He's been our partner through the government um, and allowed us now to come and collar elephants with him and the team this summer. We did a documentary about our work. Now we have a women's community there that we're doing like a cookbook 
with them so people can cook African meals at home. And we're trying to have that cookbook be on elephant dung paper. Uh, and he just provided a soccer tournament for us with the community. So we had the, the elephant team playing the bee team and we split up and we had half of us cheering on the bees, Nuyukis, and half of us cheering on the elephants, the Timbays. And so that was really fun to do with the community, but being able to, um, to change, you know, and, and pivot, we were, we were in a different part of Tanzania. Um, we were in Lamadi and meeting Lamech. And going to Mokamazi led us to collaring wild dogs and doing all this stuff. So, uh, and I think um, you have to be an organization that also has sites that are set on what you want to accomplish, but being able to have subsets that you're willing to, for me, willing to look into. You know, if you establish these elephant rhino connections, be able to go to amphibians, to birds, you know, to to other places that can make us whole, you know, uh, because there's not one story or one person too small to collaborate with. And uh, if you make yourself open as an institution like that and being able to to change paths quickly. Um, and that's what we've done in, in several countries. Um, Costa Rica, we started with Jaguars and uh, and did a mountain climb for Jaguars with Nama conservation. And now we're reforesting we're working with taper. We're working with macaws. We're working with sea turtles and, you know, getting the hatchlings back to the ocean. And uh, and now we're with a snake recovery team. So we just sent a bunch of snake guys down to to train them how to safely remove venomous snakes from houses and get them back to the wild. So it's saving people and snakes to be that interface between them, you know, having a really bad um, co collision. So uh, but I think. uh you know, the long winded answer to that question is that uh, um, the I can shorten it and just say uh, being able to be um, able to pivot quickly is one of our strengths. And on that, you talked about Costa Rica, South Africa, Tanzania, Nepal. <laughs> How do you decide where to go next with your conservation? Is it because the way you talk about it, sometimes it feels like these opportunities just fall in your lap. And I know that's definitely not the case. So what does it take to pivot to a new country, a new continent? Well, I have actually um, used my last book, The Zodiac Kids, to help guide us. So that's about um, turning conservation into birthday connections with kids, um, really kids of all ages. So instead of, um, you know, my parents had their Zodiac sign, you know, I was born in the 60s. So, you know, it was all, you know, I'm a Taurus, I'm an Aquarius, you know, what's your sign, you know, at bars and stuff. And so I've turned that around into, into people having a Zodiac sign. And I picked 12 big species, charismatic species to kind of uh, tie in with conservation with people's birthdays. So if you're a January kid, you now have the polar bear as your partner in conservation. And maybe these kids that you talk with at schools will be really involved with, with polar bear conservation and climate change. Um, if you're December, you're a rhino. If you're April, you're an elephant and so on. Um, but that has led me to say, okay, July is gorillas. We're not doing anything with gorillas. What can we do? Um, let's reach out. And we found some partnerships in Uganda. Uh, we found a guy that's reforming poachers. And, and uh, so we 
we we met him and so we started working with him um alex in uganda led us to another uh local community and we're actually going to go to uganda in january with a group of 12 people for the first time and i'll go see mountain gorillas and chimpanzees in the wild and that's kind of how i've utilized this but you know if uganda opens up and we could do a project with the shoebill a very endangered bird in that region you know um, i already have some connections and a swamp we can go visit where shoebills live so we're we're very open to having that gorilla umbrella actually work just like nepal has um and so i've used my book as a guiding way to find um new species in new countries and i've used my my buddies up at idea wild to actually make connections with a lot of these new countries and new scientists um, around the world that are working on their passion projects. And so, for instance, um, Idea Wild, we're going to go to their um, big community um, event the end of this month up in Lyons, and they will have maybe 30 new partners that are working with different species. And maybe they need technology. Maybe they need a laptop. Maybe they need um, uh, maybe they need GPS units. Um, uh, maybe they need some camera traps. But their requests are coming in from all over the world with these guys who just can can ask for something. And Wally and Joni Van Sickle um, are working with what they call the heroes and sheroes of the planet. And so he won the the zoo's conservationist of the year award probably 15 years ago. And so um, we now collaborate on these and I can go and I can buy every project in Nepal which I used to do. And he would always laugh. And if anything opened up in Nepal, I would raise my number and I would get those new connections. I would get the emails of these guys working with all these different projects. And then we started expanding. And so we were in 24 countries. Um, potentially at the end of this month, we could be 25. We could see something that really resonates with us that we want to pick up in another country. So that's also, besides the book, uh, being kind of like our, uh, you know, our, our, kind of shining star as far as where we're going, the the Idea Wild connections have also allowed us ways to maybe um, maybe I'm looking for, and I still am, a, an angle with giant pandas. So October is the only month that we don't have something going on. I wish I would have chosen a different species. It's been very difficult to find something to do in China, uh, you know, to even fund, much less, you know, just to send money over. It's been very difficult. And if there's some way that we could get involved i mean maybe wally has a has a giant panda conservation education grant that he's wanting to give some stuff and that i would definitely pick that up and then we would have a, a giant panda piece so that's kind of how we've been um kind of moving into into new regions and we've grown so fast sean that now i have zookeepers coming to me with new project ideas i have people in the community say you know, a, a guy, one of my explorers had climbed Kilimanjaro with me and climbed mountains in Costa Rica with me for rhinos and jaguars. And he said, Dave, he said, why aren't you helping the amphibians? They're getting crushed out there. The chytrid fungus, there's so many extinction events with salamanders and frogs and toads. And I was like, hey, you're exactly right. So we started a project in Ecuador with Wakiri with frogs, and they're trying to get frogs into a setting to breed them and, and be chytrid free just for having a population outside of those ones that are going extinct. And so we've sent Keith Erickson down um, 
uh, a couple times to Ecuador working with frogs. So that is how, um, you know, we have uh, moved around the world um, with uh, such dedication, but such ease is because we have an amazing group of people that are constantly um, telling us um, and giving us ideas about where we can next go. So before I ask anything else, I have to ask, what's the November Zodiac sign? <laughs> November is the Orca. So are you part of that pod, Sean? I guess I am. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> and we, we found Dr. Giles, who works up there um, with a dog named Eba. And Eba sniffs out Orca poop from the front of a boat. And so I was just there this spring, and we granted um, Dr. Giles another $2,500. Um, Katie had a had an assistance dog in college when she was sick, and the dog piece is really important. Anti poaching dogs and Eba really important to the Adamsons because it ties in those resident pod protections up in that Salish Sea up there um, around out of Seattle. Uh, I think there's only about seventy six of those orca left, the resident pods, and uh, and so Eba is out wearing her goggles, sniffing for orca poop. And uh, and then we can get DNA samples. We can find out which orca just defecated there, how healthy they are, you know, um, uh, if they're pregnant, if they're if they're lactating now. So lots of things we can find out there. So uh, so that would be something if you ever want to go to uh, to to work with your with your animal for uh, for your birthday, um, it would be sending you up to do some orca work. That would be absolutely awesome. I'll have to stay in touch. <laughs> but uh, so that's actually a great transition here where you've been talking a lot about the work you're doing around the world. But I've always found talking to you, there is a very big piece of KACF that's about connecting people here in the US with the work internationally and trying to do so. There's whether you want to call it a white savior complex in a negative way or uh, kind of looking at a lot of times you mentioned people looking at you as sometimes just an eco-tourist. How do you try to create that connection in a very positive way for people here in the U.S. while also recognizing that simply just sending people over isn't always the right call? There needs to be that action piece. Yeah, that's... um. That's been an interesting mix for us and uh, getting people over there to me was um, was the way to establish these connections. And if you take a zoo keeper, if you take a zoo volunteer and you get them over there, the impact, you know, can be can be 10 times the amount when you get them back to Colorado, because what I found is they will be at the zoo talking about human elephant conflict and seeing these elephants trying to crop rain and seeing people shooting fireworks and doing fires and drumming and stuff to try to keep the elephants away from their rice. When you take them out there and you have them be a part of the initiatives, I think that uh, indoctrination is so valuable. Um, it allows them to be part of the solution, but it also allows them to come back as an army of conservationists that you now impact, you know, tenfold, a hundredfold. Because you've got a volunteer now standing at the exhibit of the elephant house that's part of it has actually been torn down by an elephant. And you can allow them to talk about it and not say something that they've read about, not say something that is on a pamphlet that the zoo provides. But those people are now empowered by being 
you know, on the front line, you know, they've seen this, uh, this at work, they've seen this at play, they've met somebody that's maybe lost a family member to elephant aggression. You know, they've seen people that have been impacted, their houses, you know, destroyed um, by by elephants. They're not the best neighbors, you know, and actually understanding that, you know, while we're trying to save these species, but, you know, we've also got to work with these people that have them right next door. Um, so taking them over to me was always part of my solution to reach a bigger audience. Um, I can't take everybody to Nepal, but if I take 200 people, maybe maybe the impact then is 2000 people that have been you know positively impacted by that but i had a lady um i was on a rhino panel for our rhino week here in denver and she was uh, very adamant with me about you know you're part of the problem you know you're you're taking these people over you, the carbon you know you're you're adding to climate change and you're can't you do this from home and uh, and my answer simply was, yes, we could, but how am I, how am I going to establish these connections? How am I going to make things work if you're not meeting the people over there and you're not tying them in with the people that are over here? Um, and that, you know, for me, I had to start thinking about that. And we, we had to add a, a carbon offset that we now, um, we now have everybody buy in a hundred dollars for each trip goes to reforestation somewhere in the world. So even though you may go to South Africa um, with us in July, you pay $100. So potentially that's $4,200 we've just done with those people that traveled that can then reforest Borneo, can then reforest Costa Rica, that can reforest areas of Nepal just because they went to South Africa. So we're tying in, we're starting to create some ways to offset our travel um, that'll have positive impact. But I do feel like, um, you know, the more we go over and take the community, the uh, the best we can problem solve and the more uh, ways that we can meet the right people and also understand sometimes, Sean, it's 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 eliminating bad connections. If you don't go over there, you don't know where your money's going. You don't know how they're utilizing it. You can be taken advantage of. And we've over the years, we've had to call some projects because if you keep going back, you're going to you're going to weed out the ones that aren't actually utilizing your community and the funding um, in the in the most appropriate ways. And sadly, uh, you know, that could happen in, in any country. Um, and so we've had to be able to uh, to move um, our interests over there. So for me, um, getting people over there is a is a big is a big piece. And if you can raise conservation funding and awareness, um, I think it's a, it's a win-win for, for everybody. Uh, but it's also a constant struggle, you know, uh, making sure, you know, and, and you're right, this, um, this savior, we, we try as best we can, you know, some of the pictures that you have of us in the soccer tournament, you know, surrounded by a bunch of these Tanzanian children. And, you know, I'm right in the middle of this at a soccer tournament and the, it can be, very much leading people to think um, negatively of of what you're doing over there. But um, so uh, so what we we try to do is is constantly stay in front of that with uh, with really good social media posts and really good understanding. Heather Schwartz leads our social media campaign, and she's very much aware of how things look 
and how things can be confused or, you know, mis misaligned. Um, and I'm not at all trying to be um, that that guy over there um, in, in with these projects, but bringing people and letting people see this and be able to help um, just provides us the, the base that we need um, in these countries to keep continuing our, our efforts. So I want to respect your time. Uh, I could talk to you about this for the rest <laughs> of the day, probably. But uh, to kind of wrap up KACF, what's the best way for people who are listening to this and want to get involved? Well, um, for our team, I think uh, getting onto our website and looking at um, some of the projects that are going on, see if there's any synergy with some some things that you like. Um, helping us with fundraising um, is always something easy to do from home. Buying some of our merchandise from our store, helping buy a, a beehive for for Tanzania, stuff like that is is really simple ways. Um, getting up with me and figuring out a way maybe to to go on a trip um if if one of these places uh really has a you know has a has a calling to you going to a borneo going to we're going to madagascar for the first time next year um heading over to do uh some some field work with us would be fantastic um but i think um just opening up the lines of communication with myself and following that i mean your podcast you know there may be people listening all over the country and i think getting your kids involved in local conservation getting involved with your zoo getting involved with a wildlife rehabber um going out and doing some of the things that you know make a difference getting your kids on earth day to go pick up trash i think establishing um this mindset that you can do more uh, I think it's what we really want to do. Even if you don't partner with us, go out there and do something, you know, get get off the couch. Don't don't have it be losing a friend or family member to give you that um, impulse to to make a difference. Um, I think just uh, listening to your podcast, Sean, and maybe taking your kids out for a hike and uh, and taking them to the zoo and maybe supporting the local a local conservation project would be a huge way to uh to initiate some change and that's all we've all got to do together that's great advice and so kind of stemming from here i do want to ask you a few questions that i try to ask every guest at the end of the podcast and the first is what part of conservation do you feel needs our attention most today i think um the biggest challenge we're going to be facing um, in my lifetime and beyond is is going to be climate change uh, and how we adapt our philosophies around um, uh, around this this change. And we've got a lot of people out there working on this right now in the field. They see the importance, understanding how primates are changing behaviors in Costa Rica, understanding how how reptiles and amphibians are changing nesting strategies, perhaps in Nepal. Uh, so I think climate change. And the other big thing I think that we're going to have to uh, work around is this human population growth. How can we lock land in? How can we build more national parks and more preserves and refuges and give wildlife a chance? Be, a, be making corridors, be allowing for genetic, you know, um, 
you know, movement and migration in between these areas. We've got to be thinking outside the, the box a little bit, or we're going to be a planet that just has a bunch of, of big zoos. Uh, and so I think working around human population and climate change are the two big initiatives that uh, the conservation field is going to have to adapt to. So on that note, what areas of conservation do you want to see grow the most? I think for me, the biggest thing to promote um, for our organization and for others is is conservation education. The more impact we can make with the next generation, setting them up for success. You know, we have not done the best job. Um, our our parents didn't do a good job. So we're we're relying on these these children and these students now that are coming along to to want to be able to make a change. And I think I think the biggest piece is a way for organizations to touch base with these um, with these students and with these kids and educate them about what's going on and make them be a part of the solution. So then what are your concerns about the future of conservation? Oh, there are a lot of concerns and I, I try, I'm, I'm overly optimistic. I'm a glass half full kind of guy, as you may have noticed during these talks. But, um, the thing for me that's, um, of most concern is apathy. Uh, it's, it's people losing the ability to feel like we can make a difference at all. People just giving up and saying, you know, this planet now is, is for humans. And we're just gonna we're just gonna run all the other species into the ground. Everything's gonna be paved, um, and that to me is is heart wrenching to think that um, that this apathy and and lack of interest could spread faster than my passion of conservation could spread. So I don't want people listening to the naysayers and listening and just and just giving up. And that's uh, that's why we have to pass on this. Um, this positive that we are making a difference and uh, that we shouldn't let anything go extinct on our watch. And then lastly, I feel like you've touched on this a lot, but what would your advice to future conservationists be? I guess my biggest advice um, for anybody coming up in this field, um, and we have kind of danced around it a little bit, but uh, it's it's really, Sean, uh, persistence. It's not not giving up not taking no for an answer, working around your obstacles and, and, and not, um, not giving up to, um, to apathy, maybe not giving up to um, just taking a job where you're just making money, you know, but always wanting to give back and to move things forward. Um, even though your personal goals may change, even though your career may change, don't get out of um, the fight. You know, be persistent and and follow up on some of these uh, passion projects. And when I go speak at schools, you know, I say, you know, when I was a kid, I pretended I was an ostrich for like four days and uh, had to go see my first therapist um, about uh, having wings and pecking at my food. And my mom was like, what's wrong with this kid? You know, um, can I can I get a new one here? This one's a little odd. And the guy says, you're you're your son will grow out of this. He's, he's going to grow out of this. It's just a phase. And my mom always liked to say it. It wasn't, you know, you are still just a, 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 a just a smidge away from that ostrich. You know, you have <laughs> never, you have never changed. Um, so I think 
persistence and following, if you've got this passion now, keep it going. Um, have it, um, have it be what you teach and communicate, communicate to your kids and your community and your peers. Um, get them involved and let them know the facts and how they can make a difference. And I think that's all I could ask of anybody is to, uh, is to help spread this because, uh, we really need every, every soldier we can get right now. It's, it's definitely a fight. And that's a great place to wrap up there. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I had an absolute blast talking with you. Thank you. You're very welcome, Sean. It's been my pleasure. 